0: Hi, I'm Chris Nessie from the House of EdTech podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com.
1: Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Mark D. Bruce about his book, Jackie, A Boy and a Dog, A Warm Cold War Story. Mark shares how he experienced tragedy, and out of this tragedy, his world is made better as Jackie Kennedy, that's right, John F. Kennedy's wife, that's right, the First Lady, that's right, THE Jackie Kennedy, sends him a puppy. This will warm your heart. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening
0: to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show.
1: Mark grew up with a love for dogs. This became a focal point of Mark's childhood when the president and Mrs. Kennedy gave him the pup nickname Streaker, the grandpup of Strelka, the first dog to orbit Earth in a Soviet Sputnik spaceship and return alive. Mark maintained a pen pal relationship with Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis with many personal letters from the 1960s until the 1980s. Mark is an emergency medicine physician in Wisconsin, a husband of 42 years to his wife Myra E. O'Brien, Bruce, D.O., and a father and grandfather to five children and seven grandchildren. Mark has traveled with the International Medical Ministry in Central America, Asia, Europe, and Africa and led many teams into the Asian disaster zones for medical relief work. In addition to clinical duties, Mark is the ambassador to Belize and Canada for the American College of Emergency Physicians. Today, we're talking with Mark D. Bruce about his book, Jackie, A Boy, and a Dog, a warm Cold War story. Mark, thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone.
0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you.
1: Well, I'm glad you're with us, and I absolutely love your book. It is amazing, it's the coolest story. And as a, uh, a someone who has a love for history, I'm a former history teacher. And, uh, also just fascinated with the time frame in the early sixties. And I had a father who was fascinated with, with John and Jack, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy. And, uh, you know, just, uh, this is just a cool talk. So I, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today. And, uh, it's a
0: story I love to share, Steve.
1: Oh, I'm glad you do. Cause this is going to be so cool. And, uh, to my audience, uh, just wait, hey, this is so, so amazing. You know, before we get into your book, though, Mark, let's let's talk about being a kid from 1960 to 1963. Uh, Just as a note, I was born in 63. And uh, so this is this is kind of a a cool uh, time frame for me because I like going back and looking at the time frames and such. And uh, um, so I guess you would be seven to ten in this in this era. And after reading your book, it is obvious that you like baseball. Um, You were a Cardinal fan and a fan of Stan Musial. Did Did you watch baseball on TV?
0: we didn't even have tv in those days matter of fact i i remember the very first black and white tv that my parents got and that was in 1964 and that was to watch the presidential election returns and it was about a i think a 17-inch screen black and white uh but that was that was it uh we you know they didn't have the the high definition uh broadcast that we we see now And matter of fact, I I remember the first color TV that I saw, it was at a bowling alley that we, it was about a mile away from our house and it was just gee whiz technology when that came on.
1: Cool. So cool. So, so how'd you follow your team? I mean, how did, how did you watch baseball or how did you learn what was going on with them?
0: Well, you don't, the the whole era of the early sixties was a, was a much more innocent time. I think for the culture in general, but specifically, growing up in the Midwest, you know, baseball was. Uh, we, we talk about baseball, apple pie, and mom. You know, and it was it was exactly that. And I followed the Cardinals through the newspaper sports pages. Uh, we had listened to the the games on the radio, uh, and it was it was just uh, it was a delight. And and you your imagination basically took you uh to uh and you could see the game through your imagination almost as visible visibly as what you could by sitting in the stands
1: that's so awesome i it's it's you know the the difference in times it's you know and today like you're saying we can in it we can cheaply buy these giant tvs now that not so long ago were so heavy that uh you, nobody could uh move them <laughs> set without a moving team. And then before that, they didn't even exist. And, you know, it's funny. I, I grew up in the, in um, the Daytona beach area of Florida and uh, in those towns at that time, there was some minor league action that you could go see uh, Daytona beach cubs. And I forget what else they were called. Minor, I think they were also called the Daytona expos at one point, but the, uh, you know, you pretty much thanks to the beginnings of, uh, um, channels like not the beginnings, but there were these channels like WTBS, which showed the Braves in the Atlanta Braves in, uh, in Daytona. And then there was WGN who showed the Cubs out of, out of, uh, Chicago. And so I became a fan of the, having been born, <laughs> been born in Chicago and having connections to Chicago, I became a Cubs fan and became a Braves fan. And that's, you know, that's how it happened. And so it's, it's neat to understand how, uh, um, how you became, a you know, how you could stay focused on your team because today you get what, 24 hours and they even tell you stuff that you're not so sure you wanted to know. I mean, <laughs>
0: Exactly. Too much information sometimes.
1: Yeah. You got that right. So that's, that's so cool. Did you have another favorite player besides mutual?
0: Oh, well, the two that, that came to mind right away were uh, Kenny Boyer, who played third base for the Cardinals and Bob Gibson. I mean, they, they were just iconic players and you know, they, they, they also, uh, especially Kenny uh, Kenny was a, a, a military veteran and served in the military before he went uh, into uh, baseball. And so, you know, they, they were just, uh, there, there was a lot to admire about these guys, not just their talent, not just on the field, but off the field too.
1: That's so cool. The, uh, and, I, and I, and I love the, the description that you give of you and your friends playing uh, baseball in the afternoons. And that's what you do. The, uh, you know, uh, just as a side note, by the way, I was telling that story about becoming a Cubs fan and a Braves fan. Um, I later learned as, as I got older when my dad decided to pull me aside and say, um, Steve, we need to talk. Um, I understand, you know, I'm okay with the Braves, but can you stop being a Cubs fan? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> He was an avid White Sox fan being from the South yeah. side of Chicago.
0: <laughs> yeah. We, we used to say that there was medication for that.
1: <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I I think he wished that I could have taken that medication. So. <laughs> nice. The uh uh. So you are involved in 4-H. Could you talk a little bit about 4-H? What it what it is, what it stands for, what the 4-H's are, that type of thing.
0: Yeah, 4-H is really a was and still is a premier youth development organization. And the four H's stand for head, heart, hands, and health. And what they do is really summarized in their pledge, which is I pledge my head to clearer thinking, my heart to greater loyalty, my hands to larger service, and my health to better living for my club, my community, my country, and my world. So it was – Primarily, I think whenever I was growing up, it was kind of more of a rural type of organization out in the country, but it, it is now still that, but it also has expanded well into this urban and suburban communities with various programs, uh, projects that they take on uh, to meet those stated goals.
1: It's Very cool. I know I've, uh, as a former high school principal, I had some kids who were very involved in 4-H and I can remember having a couple of kids who uh, um, could tell you all about the health of a horse. And that they, they, it was so cool, the different things they could talk about horses. I had a couple of experts on chickens, too, which I thought was really huh, neat. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so cool. So eventually you were involved in the dog care project. Um, could you share a little bit about that?
0: Well, uh, I love dogs. I think uh, probably the first words out of my mouth were, can I have a dog? And. <laughs> You know, dog lovers, I think, know what I mean. uh, But (laughs) uh, there was just this natural affinity that I had for canines. So it seemed pretty natural uh, as a way to keep me busy, I think. Um, That was part of it, just like any other type of club or sports activity as you're growing up, provide you with some life skills. But uh, just real practical skills, too, because if you have a dog that you're taking care of, you need to know how to take care of it. And that sometimes doesn't come naturally. So they they schooled us really on uh, animal grooming, um, obedience training, both on leash and off leash, and feeding and care of a dog in general. And when you go through those exercises, uh, if you have anything that's of meaning to you, you appreciate it that much more if you're more invested in it and that was a way for that to happen to me with my dog midget midget was a great dog little dog but just very loyal loved to play catch and we had a great time together
1: that's awesome that's awesome that's neat that you were able to combine a this club and its activities with your love for the dog for do, for dogs and in uh, your in your in your dog midget very cool and that's actually going to lead us right into uh, where you're where the first chapter of your book picks up. So, you know, in the first chapter, let's, so let's go there. So in the first chapter of your book, Jackie, a boy and a dog, a warm cold war story. Could you share a little about what happened on that fateful day that you describe in the beginning?
0: Boy, it's a day I'll never forget, Steve. It was, uh, it was a beautiful summer day. I mean, you could, uh, central Missouri, nice, warm. You could smell the the scent of fresh cut grass from the neighbors, but we had the big backyard in the neighborhood and it was the place where all the kids would come over and play baseball. And my, my hero was Stan Musial, so I knew exactly how he stood at the plate and batted. And But as I mentioned before, Midget loved to play catch. And when we were out playing baseball, she was inside. But somehow she got outside the house, and whenever she was outside and I was around, she was with me. But I didn't know that she was outside. I was at bat. Uh, the ball was being thrown to me to hit, and I, I, I eyed up that ball. I was going to hit it over the fence. It was a perfect pitch for me, and I swung as hard as I could. But at that same moment, Midget saw the ball coming. She thought the ball was for her. So she comes running up behind me, jumps up to catch the ball just as I'm swinging my bat, and instead of hitting the ball, I hit her in the head and kill her. I watched the thing that I love die at my feet. I was devastated. I screamed. And of course, my mom heard this and she thought that something had happened to one of the kids outside. She comes running out and sees me. I was just totally immobilized by my grief. I couldn't believe what happened. And I, I can still see that in my mind's eye. And it was a terrible day uh, and I, I, that grief continued for a a good solid week. I just, I was inconsolable. I cried. I'd come out of my room to go to the bathroom and to eat. And then I'd go back and cry some more.
1: I'm so sorry. That would be, I can only, I I can only imagine. I mean, I, 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 yeah, that's the, your age, the love for the, for your, your dog midget and uh, just the time, you know, all of that would come through i just can imagine again and again and
0: uh you know i'd probably be in therapy today if it happened today you know but we didn't have those resources back then but it was uh you know looking back and kind of with my medical background it was you know probably a degree of some uh, ptsd
1: most definitely most definitely you know uh and before we go any further, let's talk about you writing your book because your story is amazing because this is just the beginning of what's going to become the, just an incredible story and uh, where it's going to change. It's going to get a lot better, people. So <laughs> um, please understand. And because uh, it's going to go from something so sad to uh, um, very happy times. You, you must have had people saying over the years that you need to write down and publish this story. And, and what finally inspired you to write your book, Jackie, a Boy and a Dog?
0: Well, all the time. I mean, people would, uh, I, this story would, would come up at various times, uh, at sometimes dinner parties. People would hear about the story and ask me to speak to like Rotary clubs or some civic clubs. And so uh, this uh, circle of friends would sometimes ask me to tell somebody else the story, but inevitably somebody would come up to me and said, have you written the book yet? And, you know, I, Maura and I have very, very busy lives. And it was just like, nah, you know, I really haven't. And, but about 10 years ago, I, I, I really took that to heart. And I thought, you know, this story has been kind of background noise for my kids growing up. I mean, they've, they've heard about it, but I don't even think any of my kids ever saw any of Jackie's letters. Oh, wow. And so I, I wanted them to understand really what I saw is some of the deeper meanings and life lessons that this story represented. And so I wrote about a 30 page uh, uh, summary of really what this story was, and then kind of just left it in a file on my computer. And about three years ago, Audi Automobiles contacted me through a European film company called Blur Films out of Madrid, Spain, and commissioned them to do a documentary on this story. And They did an excellent job, really a very, very nice piece. It's still on YouTube. Uh, It was designed for an internet uh, advertising campaign for Audi automobiles and some of their self-driving autonomous technology that they had. And with the filming of that documentary, I I thought, you know, there really is something to this that's that's remarkable. And it's a story that's important enough to be told. And so that was really kind of what pushed me to become much more serious about writing the book and, uh, and finally got it done last year. So
1: it's, I'm glad you did because this is a, you know, this is such a cool story. And, you know, at some point there's gotta be someone talking to you about this. This has gotta be a movie because <laughs> this is, well,
0: yeah, there's been some discussion <laughs> about that. So, uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Uh, We've, we've got a, a good friend and entertainment attorney down in Dallas and he always said look just get the book done first and then leverage any any other projects related to the book uh, with the book so that's where we are at this time we'll see
1: cool I'm rooting for you there that's this would be All an right. awesome this would be an awesome one we got you know as a former history teacher you get into some awesome US and world history in the book you explain what was going on between the Soviet Union and the US and the meetings between Kennedy and Khrushchev and you know, what was, what was working, what wasn't. You know, are you a history fan?
0: I, I love history. Matter of fact, one of my sons loves history enough that, uh, matter of fact, this is, we have two, two of our five children that are in Madison, and Tim is one of the, uh, he's uh, in his fourth of six years of plastic surgery down at the University of Chicago right now. And uh, he was a history major. I mean, during, during his college years, I always told all of our kids, and says, look, study what you're passionate about. And he just loved history too. So I don't know if that's genetic, uh, <laughs> or if if this story kind of uh, tweaked my interest in history. I had a great history professor in college, but this was I, I I do I I just really really enjoy history.
1: It it well it comes through because the way you tell the story is just it's magical because you're you're listening to your side parts of this and everything from. Um, We'll come back to Charlie in a little bit, but, you know, with um, President Kennedy, with Charlie and uh, using him to kind of comfort him as he's making decisions and such. I mean, it's just it's so cool. The, uh, you know, did you talk a little bit about the research? Did you need to spend some time finding out the particulars that you share about the stance that both sides were taking and what happened? I mean, how did you do this research?
0: Well, I did. And I I think if you're going to do anything well, you need to be accurate. And it it needs, this is a true story. And so you want to to be faithful to uh, the historical narrative that really exists and puts this whole story in context. I had read back, oh, um, I think during my college years, uh, a book called Johnny, We Hardly Knew Ye. And that is actually got a copy of it here. Nice. Uh, written by uh, Ken O'Donnell and uh, Dave Powers, who are close friends and aides to President Kennedy. And they uh, actually talk about some of the dogs briefly in the book. Um, and it, it it's an inside uh, on the scenes, eyes on narrative of, of what happened in those days, those days of, of Camelot, those days where uh, so much of uh, world history unfolded in some very, very uncertain times. And the other book that i that I really looked at and got a lot out of was called "Dog Days in at the White House," written by Travis Bryant. And um, uh, Travis was was actually the dog handler for the Kennedys, and he was on for he worked at the White House for several administrations. And uh, details a lot of, again, behind the scenes type of things that took place, and not just with the dogs, but with the families that were there, too. So those were, those were two books that I really uh, looked at and had recollection of and went back and looked at again as I was writing the book. Uh, and I had a friend up in Canada, uh, Bill Willis, who actually has uh, a keen interest in this same uh, historical era. And Bill did some, some research for me too. And, um, and was, was a help in writing this.
1: Excellent. Well, this is such, this is so cool. Cause you're, you're after telling all this, you're sur- soon going to be in the middle of some of this <laughs> and it's, it's so cool. Um, they, uh, but you do a great job of relaying this, this time frame and what's going on in the world. And, uh, um, and there's some great stuff we're going to get into in a few minutes that come out in your book, which I think is so awesome. Um, uh, you know, you share some incredible stories about the role that several dogs played in history. Could you tell the listeners a little about Charlie, Strelka, Belka, and Push, Pushinka?
0: Yeah. It, it, it really is interesting how dogs play into uh, this story. And obviously, it's a story about a dog, but it's a story about people. And it actually began, uh, Strelka and Belka were strays off the streets of Moscow. They, quote, volunteered for the Soviet space program, (laughs) uh, and they were successful in that volunteer effort primarily because they could tolerate being caged. And at that time, the Soviets were just beginning to send um, animals up in space. They would hard land their capsules in the desert. And they hadn't shielded a lot of the capsules real well, so there was a lot of problems getting the animals back alive, either from reentry or from hard landings. But they finally figured it out when they sent Strelka and Belka up in the space capsule. And uh, I've got a a picture of Strelka and Belka actually in that space capsule in the book. It's really very, very interesting. There was uh, some, I believe, some uh, rodents on that uh, space capsule too and there was some plant life that they had on that space capsule. But this was the very first Sputnik to come back uh, from space safely. And Strelka and Belka both survived that re-entry. Strelka, after she came back, had a litter of pups, uh, six, six pups in that litter. And these pups were born just a few weeks before the Vienna Summit Conference in 1961. So when Kennedy was elected president, He really wanted to engage the Soviet Union, which was a a significant superpower uh, in uh, in the world at that time. And it was looking retrospectively a bit too ambitious because he was very inexperienced in terms of making foreign policy decisions, but he wanted to engage them. He was counseled by his advisors not to do that but he went ahead with that and scheduled this Vienna summit conference barely five months into his administration there in Vienna at the Schoenbrunn palace, Khrushchev met with Kennedy and he, from a, a, again, a policy perspective, his performance was subpar. Matter of fact, he termed his performance that he got quote rolled by Khrushchev and the saving grace out of that whole meeting, though, was the state dinner that took place in this grand gallery that they have there. It's just a magnificent room. This Schönbrunn Palace is on a historic site. It's the site of the Battle of Vienna, where there was the largest cavalry charge known to mankind of 40,000 mounted troops that came down against the Ottoman Turks as they were extending or trying to extend their empire into Central Europe. That was the point at which the Ottoman Turks were turned back, and that advance stopped at the Battle of Vienna, but the original Schönbrunn Palace burned down during that battle and was rebuilt as it stands today, a magnificent 1,400-room palace. So in this palace, they had the state dinner, and in the rooms of that palace, they had the meetings of the summit conference. The state dinner is kind of the highlight of of this kind of meeting, and Khrushchev was seated next to Jacqueline Kennedy. Jacqueline Kennedy was uh, was an incredible, glamorous, very uh, enigmatic, uh, uh, somewhat exotic personality, very iconic lady, probably the most iconic woman of the 20th century. And so she charmed Khrushchev. And Jack did not. (laughs) And there was a moment during the dinner conversation where uh, the conversation started to fall a little bit flat. And Jackie, being a dog lover herself, knew about the space pups that Strelka had had and not very seriously suggested to Premier Khrushchev, oh, you must give me one of those pups. Everybody had a little bit of a chuckle. Until two weeks later, the Soviet ambassador shows up at the White House with this puppy. That was Kushinka, one of Strelka's pups. Well, you're not going to turn away a gift of state like that. But they were uh, somewhat uh, personally embarrassed because they already had a dog. That was Charlie. And the Secret Service was very concerned that this dog from the Russians might represent a spy tool. (laughs) <laughs> that maybe the dog was bugged, and so they took the dog over to Bethesda, and had it examined, had it x-rayed. And once they were assured that this was just a dog and not a spy tool, the dog was uh, welcomed into the Kennedy household. Well, that was uh, that was that was Pushinka. Uh, Pushinka was trained to do kind of some tricks for the kids. She would climb up the, the play set that they had set up in back of the White House and slide down the slide. Uh, she, she was a, a, a dog that was ripe for a photo op. But Charlie, Charlie was the, the dog that the Kennedys brought into the White House with them. He was a Welsh Terrier, and he was Jack's favorite dog. He would, he would accompany Jack whenever Jack would go to the swimming pool and would sometimes swim with Jack and uh, there were uh, a lot of other interactions. He just loved having Charlie around, and you previously mentioned uh, one of the the great examples of the solace that, that Jack would take with his animals, especially Charlie, occurred during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was uh, a, a time of great anxiety uh, throughout the nation, throughout the world. I mean, we we really felt that there was a legitimate threat of a nuclear holocaust. And during this time, uh, at a very, very critical time, the war room, the situation room in the White House was abuzz with activity. The president was there. All of his advisors were there. There was a lot of information coming in about the the. the uh, blockade that was associated with stopping the Cuba, the Russian missiles being uh, brought in to uh, Cuba. And that was uh, the apex, I think, of the the tension of, of the Cold War, and specifically the Cuban missile crisis. Right in the middle of this, the president's sitting down and he turns to Travis Bryant and he says, bring Charlie to me. And so he, he does, he brings Charlie into the president. And the president just for about 10 minutes just is playing with Charlie, just petting them and kind of just, just uh, focusing on Charlie. And everybody in the room really thought, oh my gosh, the president's really losing it here. And after about 10 minutes, he hands Charlie back to Travis and he says, well, I guess it's time for us to make some decisions. So in, in that context, we see how this little dog, Charlie, this Welsh terrier, was able to help the president center down and refocus and be able to, to make some decisions that were critical to world history. So that's that's an incredible, powerful uh, uh, aspect to how animals affect us, not just the president, but all of us, I think. So. Um, th- that was Charlie. Charlie and Pushinka fall in love in 1963, and uh, Ch- Charlie sires four pups by Pushinka.
1: Nice. By
0: that time, there had been other dogs added to the White House kennels. I think they had five dogs altogether before Pushinka had her litter, and so all of a sudden they've got a a, a big kennel that's <laughs> full of dogs. So th- that's kind of a little background again in terms of leading up again to. To uh, this litter of pups that Pushinka has in 1963,
1: that's cool. Thank you so much for sharing, because it's so cool. The role these the, the, these dogs are going to play, not just going to, to played at that time frame, and between two countries that literally, it you know, a lot of the world were thinking that you know we might as well say goodbye now because it's about to come to an end, um, the world and everything that we know, and uh, um, and somehow uh, you know we end up with the dogs in the middle that are going to help things out a little bit, which is really cool. So, uh, um, so awesome. The, uh, you know, what, now we're getting to the, where you come in and, uh, and, and with those puppies and all that. And I want you to use Paul Harvey to help us get there because I used to enjoy listening to Paul Harvey. Paul, uh, when, I, when I grew up with him, used to say, and here's the rest of the story, you know, and now you know the rest of the story and stuff like this. And yeah. there's all kinds of stuff that he used to say that I have firmly implanted in my mind. And, um, what was it that he said that impacted you, and why did it impact you?
0: Well, here I was at the end of that week of grief that I, that I had after killing Midget. And uh, we would always listen to Paul Harvey news and commentary at noontime. He had a 15-minute broadcast. And I remember distinctly sitting at the lunch table, eating lunch, and hearing him a week after I killed Midget, announced that they just had a litter of pups at the White House. What are they gonna do with all those dogs? And so I'm thinking to myself, hey, I need a dog. I, I, I'll write the Kennedy family and tell them what happened and see if they'll give me a dog. And I couldn't think, I mean, it seemed perfectly rational to me being 10 years old. And so I, m- and my brothers, uh, I'm the youngest of three boys. My older brothers looked at me, and uh, they thought I was crazy, and they let me know that in no uncertain terms. Nice. But my mother said, look, uh, just write the letter. Um, And she encouraged me to go ahead and do it. I think she probably thought this is maybe a way for me to handle my grief. Uh, And so I I did. I sat down, and I I wrote a letter. And in my letter, I said, more or less, I killed my dog. Can I have one of yours? (laughs) Nice. And uh, they sent a letter back about a week later, and this was just kind of one of the secretaries at the White House, Nancy Tuckerman, which was actually a lifelong companion of Jackie's. She was her social secretary, and said, we're sorry to hear your sad story, but we're not going to give any of the dogs away. So in my mind, that was the end of it, and uh, I, at that point in time, I... uh, I wasn't going to give up because I needed, I not just wanted a dog. I needed a dog.
1: It's so first of all, that you wrote the letter is amazing. Then you get a response, which is kind of heartbreaking because they're basically saying, sorry, you know, appreciate you asking, but, and yeah, from a government perspective, you can only imagine <laughs> looking back on it as an adult, probably, uh, um, what they were thinking at, at that uh, at the White House, not necessarily the Kennedys, but the, um, whoever was advising them about having puppies and what to do with them. But your persistence in that you don't give up here is so amazing because I think for a lot of kids, that would be it and uh, we kind of move on to something else.
0: It, you know, Steve, it, it, you, you, to that point, uh, I was uh, on Dana Perino's daily briefing show on Fox News about six weeks ago. And Dana, as you know, was worked in the White House with the Bush administration. And she, before she got her security clearance, she worked at the children's desk, uh, looking and, and going through children's letters that would be written to the the president and the first lady. And she was amazed. She says, I can't believe they even responded to you. She says, we would get all these letters about, uh, gee, can the president come to my birthday party? Or I'm having a fight with my brother. Can Can the president tell my brother to stop it? And she says, I, I can't believe that they even responded to you in any way, let alone a positive response. So
1: That's that's just so, so awesome, especially to hear that, because I can't imagine. I mean, it's just, and here's this history of me coming back. It's like, it is so cool because you have. Copies of these letters, and you show pictures of the other letters that are to follow as well. And just to, uh, to know that they responded to you is just amazing. I, and it's neat to hear that someone in, in that world is saying the same thing. Wow. So just, just cool. Yeah. Mark, so many things seem to be working against you. The White House said they won't let the puppies be distributed. You learn about the sheer number of people who actually wrote and asked for a puppy, yet something neat happens. Can you describe what happens?
0: Boy, it was, again, uh, that statement from Paul Harvey seemed like a lifeline to me, because I was just literally drowning in my grief. And it was, uh, I, I have to look back on it with, through the, the, the lens of a Judeo-Christian worldview and see divine intervention here, because there's just no way that this, this should have happened. But I, I just didn't give up. And even whenever they wrote back and said they weren't going to give any of the dogs away, I kind of had my Plan B uh, ready to go. <laughs> and my my Plan B was let's go to the dog pound and get a dog. And I was going to talk my parents into doing this. And you know we didn't call it the Humane Society back then; it was the dog pound. And uh, every day, I'm sure I drove my parents crazy. But it was like, can we go to the dog pound today? And I was like, well, no, let's wait till we get back from this trip. Or no, you know, your father's going to be uh, going someplace next week. Or let's wait until we get the fence built in the backyard. And there was always an excuse of the day. But I, I just didn't give up.
1: It's so awesome. I, you know, as a history guy, I have to share a statement that you make on page 61. I must put the next part of this story into perspective. Can you put this into context for everybody because this is, this is kind of be one of my favorite parts of the book that uh, you know, may not hit people as, as much as it did me.
0: Well, our, our families, the Kennedys and the Bruce families were completely different. I mean, complete opposites. I talk about how we were Protestants and they were Catholic and they were rich and we were not rich. We were, we were at that point probably lower middle class. And uh we had um you know, they were Democrats, and we were Republicans, and we lived in the Midwest, and they lived on the East Coast, and they were elites, and we were certainly not, uh, and we had these squeaky clean uh midwestern values and and I say, you know the Kennedys, well, they were Kennedys, <laughs> but it, 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 what it does it this juxtaposition of the differences that we have with each other helps, I think the readers understand how there is no way that this could have happened outside of divine intervention.
1: That is so cool because there's so much that happens here that it, it really speaks to that. And, and, you know, in early in your book on page 44, you say this, this kind of faith must walk hand in hand with patience because God has his own timing And sometimes he doesn't exactly meet our schedule. Could he explain what you were saying then and throughout the book?
0: Well, you know, that that quote references um, uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, uh, in the Holy Scriptures that we call the Bible. And it, it really defines faith as faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So if you know what's going to happen, that's not really that's. If you know the outcome, that's not really faith. That's that is something that is uh, assurance or certainty, and the Bible demonstrates God's progressive revelation of His character throughout uh, the Bible, from from Genesis, the very beginning, all the way to the end of the Bible, and when we understand, we get this sense of. Uh, not only who God is, but um, His designs for mankind and for us each individually. So we we tend to look at time in a linear fashion because we can't we can't see the overarching history that God can see from beginning to end. We're here in a moment, and so we're looking back and we're looking forward to a very very limited degree. But God has this nonlinear perspective of time because he is creator and sustainer of all these things. And for him, his timing is not necessarily what our timing is. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get across in that quote: is that faith allows us to really set aside maybe some of our expectations and the way we think that things should happen and put our our faith, our hope, our trust in the Almighty.
1: It's, it's so awesome because it plays out so well throughout the story. So let's, you know, one of the things I'd like to do is make sure that we shift into uh, um, actually what happens because there, there's a phone call that comes to uh, your house, which, <laughs> you know, in this modern world, <laughs> I can't, I, I can't imagine what it was like then, nevertheless now. And I love the part where your father, Uh, when you go to tell your father and he has to uh, decide whether he thinks this is real or not and figuring out possibly how to let you down, that this is somebody's really bad joke. Um, Can you just share a little bit about uh, what now is getting ready to happen?
0: Well, I I talked a little bit uh, a few minutes ago about my plan B, about going to the dog pound. And that went on all summer until August 18th, 1963. Now my father was a minister and so Sunday mornings were always busy, busy times in our household. Dad preached two services on Sunday. That particular Sunday, he had already gone to church with uh, my oldest brother who sang in the youth choir. And mom was involved with Sunday school. And so we would always get a lot of phone calls on Sunday mornings, usually from teachers uh, that uh, were sick or uh, we needed to pick somebody up on the way to church. And I was already, ready. My, my next older brother and my mom were still kind of getting fluffed and buffed ready for church. But I was sitting at the kitchen counter reading the Sunday funnies when the phone rings. Well, that wasn't unusual. So I picked the phone up and I could tell that it was a long distance call. And there was a lady with a strange accent on the other end of the line. And she said, is Master Bruce there? And meaning me. But I wasn't used to being called master around the house. So I thought that master referred to slave owners or something like that, you know, that you would see in the movies. And and this strange lady must mean Mr. Bruce rather than Master Bruce. And so I I said, no, you know, he's already at church. I couldn't figure out why she wouldn't call my dad Reverend Bruce like everybody else did. And I said, "Uh, would you like to speak to my mother? And she says, yes, that would be fine. So the lady on the other end of the line was Evelyn Kennedy, the president's personal secretary. And she proceeded to tell my mom that the Kennedys had decided to give me a dog. Did I still want one? Or would we take the dog? Well, you know, when the president calls and offers you something, (laughs) don't say no. And my mother was, I, I, I was kind of watching my mother as she was talking and she was smiling and much more animated than what she was normally in Sunday morning conversations on the phone. And so I was kind of curious as what what this was all about. She talks a few more minutes, hangs the phone up, and turns to me and says, Mark, that was the White House. They're going to give you a dog. So I heard the part about, I'm getting a dog. The part about the White House was really <laughs> kind of lost on me. But I was I, thrilled. I couldn't believe it. Finally, I'm getting a dog, the dog that I need. And so I go to my father's office uh, when we get to church because I want to tell dad. And I'm sitting in his office when he comes back from the first service, which is unusual because I'm usually in Sunday school class. And my dad says, Mark, why aren't you in class? And I said, Dad, the White House called this morning and they're going to give me a dog. Well, my dad was a man of the world. He was a World War II vet. He was, had been around uh, you know, uh, uh, enough to know that these type of things just don't happen. And that's when he said, Mark, I think somebody's playing a very bad joke on you. And I said, no, no, really, Dad. Mom, Mom, uh, uh, talk to them, too. And he says, send your mother down, and I'll, I'll talk to her. So I went upstairs, and I said, Mom, Dad doesn't believe me. He <laughs> wants to talk to you. So mom goes downstairs and he convinces her that this is some kind of prank. And by the time we finish the second service, I don't think any of us were really paying much attention to it. We go back home and as we, we turn into our driveway, we see the entire press corps camped out on our front lawn. And that's when the reality of the truth of this really hit.
1: I cannot imagine what that would have been like and especially i mean you're how big was your town
0: uh columbia was probably about 30 40 000 people at that time
1: so they're now going to you're now about to become a celebrity and uh you got the press corps and the white house is communicating with you
0: <laughs> well it was i think a slow news day steve <laughs> Uh, you know, it was August, Congress is on recess, you know, the president and his family are vacationing up in Hyannisport. And it was, uh, it it was a nice, it was a feel good story about a a boy and a dog. And uh, so it it was, it was one of those things that, that the press was hungry for some kind of information. So I think that probably uh, fed into some of the media attention.
1: That is so cool. And and out of this with when you uh, you end up with your your dog and uh, um, your dog is uh going to be with you for a long time, lives a very long, wonderful life, seventeen years uh, and there's different segments along the way that you talk about in your book, which is really cool and and that whole time you're communicating with Jackie Kennedy, onassis what uh can you talk just a little bit about that those letters that were written and
0: it was, it was, looking back at the time, it seemed pretty normal. And it was like, when you grow up with something, you kind of just assume that that's, that's what normal is. But I would, I was well-trained as my parents trained me to have good manners. And when somebody does something nice for you, you say thank you. And so that's what I did, is after I, I got Streaker, I sat down and wrote a thank you letter to the Kennedy family. And in early September of 63, Jackie writes me back and she writes this very personal uh, three-page handwritten letter from the White House uh, on her Tiffany Blue stationery, which she always used. Uh, She uh, tells me about life at the White House, kind of behind the scenes type of things that go on and ends the letter with the statement, please stay in touch, because Carolyn and I will be really interested in knowing how Streaker and you turn out. So I took her at her word, and every year or two, sometimes more frequently, I would write her a letter. And I would send a picture of me and Streaker, and let her know what was going on in our lives, and she would always write me back. And, those letters were, you know, I was kind of nice to hear from her, but it didn't occur to me until I was in college that this was something really out of the ordinary. It was something very, very special because I'm looking around at my buddies and <laughs> I'm the only one getting letters from Jackie.
1: <laughs> cool. So. That's so awesome. It, 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 you know, and by the way, I, I love the fact that you, you talk about when you tell, um, your girlfriend, who eventually becomes your wife, um, about these stories. You kind of did. You have some trouble with some people believing you?
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, more. Even now, it's kind of funny because you know the dog story's been told so many times, and especially now with the book. Whenever the dog topic comes up, she kind of rolls her eyes a little bit because. <laughs> but the the first time, I think she thought I was uh, a little bit more than eccentric. Uh, that I was. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. This really happened. You
1: know? That's so cool. Um, the, uh, it just such a, a wonderful feel good story. I mean, you end up, your heart's broken. Eventually you end up with a, a dog that becomes part of your life, lives long life. Like we talked about for 17 years and you end up writing and communicating with Jackie. Um, and, and you also talk about how in the book that, you know, you feel like there was a hand guiding you and how your, your life would, you know, be shaped. And you know, around page 108, you comment, as I've grown into adulthood, my own journey from a naive child to a busy and responsible adult has led me to especially appreciate the time she took to respond to me. Can you please tell the audience a little about this statement?
0: Well, you know, I think uh, as you, as a child, you, you have a sense that everything is revolving around you and as you kind of grow up and mature you realize that that's not necessarily the case and i i this book is really uh as as much as it's a story about a a, a boy a dog and a very iconic lady it's also a book about god's grace and how uh god really used jackie as an instrument of his grace to me and Throughout uh, those years where I was corresponding with Jackie and getting letters from Jackie, she was encouraging me. She wanted to know where I was going to go to medical school. She wanted to know what I was, <clears throat> what Moira and I were going to be doing. She encouraged me through the the time that Maura and I were in the in the Navy and congratulated us on our our uh, our children, at least the the first child that we had. And so it 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 became um as you mature again uh i looked back and realized what an iconic woman this was and the demands that she had on her life and yet she took time to pay attention to me and marveled at that and again reflected that this was something that was god really using her as an instrument of his grace and when you are a recipient of that grace, you don't hold on to it, but you pass it on to somebody else and I really feel that that relationship equipped me to be an instrument of grace to many people around the world that I've been able to touch through my medical work
1: That's so awesome i you know and now you, you became an emergency room doctor, even though you had some thoughts at one time of of maybe doing other types of uh, um, doctor role, uh, medical roles, doctor roles, That's a, <laughs> sound like a little kid, um, it, other types of medical roles. A- and then the missionary trips that became part of your life as a doctor. Could you talk a little bit about that? You know, those are
0: trips that I really didn't look for. They kind of came to me, but we had, uh, I, I, I talk a little bit in the book about uh, becoming really a world traveler in my teenage years, because I was a foreign exchange student in Austria. And so we had, Developed relationships in many parts of the world, and through those relationships, I was asked uh, sometimes by people uh, in those areas that were on the ground to come over and help out. Uh, sometimes I was sent by my church. Uh, I was involved with um, uh, the missions committee at our church, is a very very large church here in Wisconsin, and when you have you put your giftedness at God's disposal and you let him use you as he sees fit it's really amazing what happens and that's exactly what what has happened with me is that i've tried to do that and so core content in emergency medicine involves disaster work because any day you're in the emergency department you're going to have a mini disaster somebody's going to come in in crisis or there's a bunch of people that come in in crisis. Sometimes they're in groups, sometimes they're individual. But we are also trained to respond to really big disasters, sometimes man made, sometimes mass shootings, sometimes uh, a multi- multiple vehicle car accident, but also natural disasters too. And that's what we have seen over this last few decades, especially in Asia. Uh, earthquakes, tsunamis, and those have resulted in significant loss of life. And I was called by again people that knew me in those areas to respond. And I, whenever I would get the call, uh, I would I would respond. And so, particularly in the tsunami affected area, which involved the the western tip of Sumatra, uh, when you look at Indonesia in general, Sumatra is one of the is the most western island in Indonesia. It is uh, culturally from east to west Indonesia becomes more Islamic as you go west and Banda Aceh is the only province in Indonesia that is ruled by Sharia law and that was the area that was hit by the tsunami. So we were in and I was asked to go on multiple um, uh, trips into there for medical relief work over a period of three or four years following that and then into the West Sumatra earthquake zone uh, because of, again, uh, the, our presence there had been noted and they kept asking us to come back. And so whenever they, they would do that, we would go.
1: That is awesome. You've, what an incredible uh, focus to have for, for your life of giving, giving back and helping others. The, uh, you know, Mark, before we go, uh, First of all, I've enjoyed having this conversation with you and I can't thank you enough for making your story come alive in your book because that is, uh, I'm glad you decided to tell it and make that book happen. You know, before we go, if someone wanted to connect further with you and get a copy of your book, Jackie, A Boy and a Dog, A Warm Cold War Story, where would you send them?
0: Well, probably the best way to uh, do that is to go to our book website, which is jackieboydog.com There are some, uh, it's a fairly robust site. There's uh, some media linked up to it. I mentioned the uh, Dana Perino interview that aired about six weeks ago. That's linked up. Audi Automobiles, uh, as I mentioned before, also did the documentary, and that is linked up there too. It's about a nine and a half minute video. Uh, But there's also a way to purchase the book either directly from the website or linking. uh, There's a link to Amazon Uh, The book publication date is March 1st of this year, so in just a few weeks, uh, Amazon will begin shipping the book. They're taking pre-orders of the book now, but the book is available now in an e-book format uh, through Amazon, but it's also available immediately, uh, the hardback cover that Amazon will be shipping. I uh, also have a supply of books that is uh, called a limited author supply, and so we are selling the book through the website and shipping the book now. So the book costs $17.99. There's about three dollars shipping and handling. But again, through JackieBoyDog.com, uh you can see that and uh and, and have a way to to get the book if you want.
1: Awesome. And I'll have links to that in my show notes. So uh, uh last question and it's something I just like to ask my guests. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it, and what would you say if given the chance to say thank you?
0: I have really two uh, outstanding teachers that, that made a, a significant impact on me. Number one was my high school choir teacher, John Putnam. Uh, I was in an elite choir uh, that was an acapella choir at McClintock High School in Tempe, Arizona. And John gave me the gift of music and we had phenomenal music. This was, uh, I, I, we recorded an album, uh, and I have converted that album to digital files. And I listened to that, that, that brings great solace to me. It, it was just phenomenal music. And I would tell John, thank you for the gift of music. My second, uh, Teacher that had an impact on me was my history professor, as you would expect with this book, uh, and his name was Ro- Dr. Robert Reed, and Dr. Reed was my history professor at Baylor, world history. Turns out that he was the uncle of Van Cliburn, the pianist that won the Tchaikovsky competition in Moscow in 1958, and he was just a, a Tremendous storyteller, he made history come alive with his pithy anecdotes, and it just gave me that instilled into me that love of history. I, I he had a quote that I always will remember, and that is this: "He who becomes wedded to the spirit of the times will find himself a widower in the next generation." It's a pretty good perspective on history. But it really applies to the concept of there is eternal truth. There are some things that, and, and we see this again through a Judeo-Christian prism, that that represents God's progressive revelation of his character and how he has given us a guideline in terms of how we should live our lives. And that doesn't change with time. That's the same now as what it was a thousand, two thousand 4,000 years ago. So when we deviate from that, we do so at risk to our own selves.
1: Mark, thank you so much for sharing your book and your stories and your the, the teachers who made an impact on you. This is just, I love the book, Jackie, a Boy and a Dog, A Warm Cold War Story. I mean, what an amazing story. I love your book. Thank you for telling this story. You know, thank you to the people who encouraged you to tell the story that made it happen. So I think that's so cool. Um, Streaker must have been an amazing friend. it's so cool that you connected with Jacqueline as well. And uh, I'm wishing the best in all that you do.
0: Thank you, Steve. It's been a joy talking to you. And like I said, this is a story I love to share.
1: Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here.